Uh, it has been a busy week for AIM Chowsan, our uh, student and big kids pastor, and Jonathan Locke, who oversees our discipleship on the Antioch campus, and I, we travel to Carrollton, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas, and went to a pastor's conference, minister's conference this week, and really had a great time. I am so grateful for the opportunity to be able to go and to be able to hear some of these pastors, uh, leaders from uh, around the world with whom I have great respect for and I'm always challenged. The best ones, in my opinion, give challenges to us not only as ministers of the gospel and are calling pastors, but also to us personally about where we are relationally with Christ and what needs to change. And so two of the keynotes for us this week were Kyle Eidelman, who's a pastor out of Louisville, Kentucky. You may or may not be familiar with him. And the other, Matt Chandler, uh, probably a name that you're more familiar with, has been a part of the Right Now Conference for years. And so his topic for us, the topic for the week was follow, but his topic for us uh, was directly related to not only who we were in Christ, but uh, this, this charge, this challenge for us to continue to carry out the gospel. I always like to write down quotes if there are some good quotes that a pastor speak, and one that he shared was, you cannot do life for Jesus unless you are doing life with Jesus. I think there's this mindset at times that I'm going to go do this great work for God and he's going to work and move and I'm going to be obedient and I'm going to do whatever he calls me to do. But in the process of that, for, we forget the with. The first and foremost, if we surrender our lives to him, that we are his child. And that relationally with him, he is our first and foremost. And we can become very active for God, but miss the point of all of it, which is to fall more and more deeply in love with him as we hold out the gospel to a lost and dying world. And so he reminded us of that in his challenge to us, not only in our public life as a a pastor or minister of the gospel, but in our private lives as well. And then he also talked about um, how some hold to this white-knuckled belief And the way he showed us as he reached out in front of him, which there was nothing there, but it was like he was grabbing onto a bar, uh, like on a roller coaster. And he was preparing himself for what was coming, and he's he's gripping this, this bar. And he said to us, challenging us, are you called to a white knuckled discipline for the sake of earning God's favor? Or are you called into deep relationship with himself as Christ's love compels us? And so the picture of that, of these individuals who are trying to work their way into a relationship with God, who want to get his favor, it's this, it's this white-knuckled, if I mess up too much or if I make too big of a mistake, then, uh, then I'm probably done for. Uh, my security and, and whatever I thought was going to be heaven or relationally with God is now, now finished. And so uh, I don't have hope anymore because they weren't able to earn whatever they thought was enough of God's favor. And he reminded us with that, if not only we were in that position, but if those who were there with whom we knew were in the same position, those whom we led, uh, then we're probably leading incorrectly in some respects. Because we don't earn God's favor. We don't earn his salvation. 
That's a gift of God to us through Jesus' death and resurrection, coming into a relationship with him. It was just really a, really a great reminder for all three of us, and we talked about that throughout the rest of the day and really even uh, the rest of the trip together, being challenged by him in that way. And so, in the same way that these several ministers of the gospel challenged us publicly and privately, as we get into the 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, a continuation of Paul's challenge to Timothy, he was doing the same. There's a component of what he challenged Timothy with here that was his public ministry, there's a portion of it which is his private life with Christ. But before we read and really start diving into the passage, let's, let's pray together. So, Father, this morning we're asking for your help as we dive into your word for you to show us more of yourself, that we would be challenged in areas where possibly we're unaware of or of those things that we hold to that we say are truth that may not be scripturally accurate or whatever it is in our lives that may be off, that we've not recognized before. In light of those and other areas of our life, really our entirety of our lives, we pray that you would show us yourself in these moments in your word. We're trusting you for that. Help us to draw closer to you as a result. We love you. Amen. All right, let's read 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5 together. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into mists. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So remembering what Paul had talked with Timothy about previously as we walked through chapter 3, he reminded him continually of this heritage that he had in growing up, in knowing about God, knowing uh, about the Old Testament, about the Ten Commandments and other things that were a part of it, knowing the stories being steeped in it, and then a point where Timothy surrenders life to Jesus. Paul encouraged him, remember your heritage, remember who you are from, remember your calling in Christ, encouraging him. And then he begins uh, with kind of a stark phrase, I charge you in the presence of God, as if the rest of the letter was not being addressed in the same way. It was. He said, I charge you in the presence of God. And then he presented this picture of a courtroom. So if you've been in one, if you've served on jury duty or you, at some point in your life you've been in a courtroom, you know the, the setting is there's a big, uh, big desk up front and, and the judge comes in and, and the statement is made, all rise in honor of the judge and everyone does so and then ask to be seated and you're seated and, and then the court proceedings begin and it goes through this process. Well, he paints this picture of this courtroom and of Christ, of course, God, presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is judge of the living and the dead, him being the judge and us being in that position, and by his appearing to his kingdom. And, and so he sets this, this moment reminding Timothy that there was a day that was coming for him where he would be face to face with the king. In essence, telling him, not only am I Paul going to die, 
unless Christ comes back first. But Timothy, you are too. And there's a judgment that you will face as a result. And either God will see the blood of Jesus covering your sin or he will not. Two different judgments described in the word, primarily New Testament, that there will be a judgment for those who don't know Jesus, who've never surrendered their lives, and those who do. And so he was reminding him of this, telling him the day is coming. In essence, make the most of every opportunity because you don't know when that day is, gonna, is going to arrive. You don't know when that day is going to come and you need to be not only prepared, but you need to take advantage of the opportunities that you've been given to do what he says next, to preach the word, to share the gospel, to share the story of his life of when he came into a relationship with Jesus, the difference that he'd made in his life, this love that he had for God, and for those individuals, not only was he sharing that, but to share the gospel, the truth that they too can have a relationship with Christ. There would be a lot of sacrifice and a lot that would go with it, that life would not be easier. It would actually be harder because you're following God and he never promised us this ease of life. Actually promised us the opposite. But in the midst of that, he was calling out this faithfulness in the life of Timothy. And then he said in the phrase, be prepared in season and out of season. An interesting picture. We think of seasons. We're going towards winter. So we know the snow is coming at some point, probably. Uh, he, in this, the seasons, talking about a time when it was good, when people were receptive to the gospel and to Christ, and even if there are times, which there will be, where there's not as much receptivity to the gospel. Junior year in high school. Might have been different for you, uh, especially for students now. It's freshmen, sophomore, junior, seniors, all in the same location. My high school years, sophomore, junior, senior, there were only three classes. And I remember in particular, junior year was a great year for me to be able to share the gospel. There was an openness with teachers and students. And I'd, I'd been following Jesus at that point for at least a year and a half. I carried my Bible on top of my books. I started a Bible club first uh, semester as a sophomore in high school and uh, invited students to come. We saw students getting saved. I mean, it was, it was really something. And junior year, I remember going into classes and people that I, I knew on a surface level of all grades knew my reputation, knew who I was. And so they'd ask me, hey, this has happened with my mom. She's having surgery. Would you pray for my mom? And of course it wasn't across the room. Hey, Christian kid, pray for my mom. No, it's quietly come up. Hey, would you pray for my mom? She's having surgery. I'd love to pray for your mom. Teachers, Mr. Kraft, math teacher, Mrs. Kirschen biology. Drew great relationships with those two. Teachers in their 30s, I, a junior, 16 years old, deep spiritual conversations at lunch, before school, after school, giving mutual encouragement, encouraging them, keep holding out the gospel in the classroom. Students are in desperate need of Jesus. Keep doing it. So this junior year, there was this freshness of being in season it was okay to be a Christian that year. Saw a lot happen. Second year, Wichita State. Radically different story. Walking through campus, seeing different organizations that actually proclaimed hatred towards Christianity. Looking for opportunities to spend time with those individuals, to share the gospel, to show them the love of Christ. 
getting very heavy rejection. Speech class standing up in front, sharing my testimony, sharing the gospel in class. Again, Wichita State University. That's a D1, huge. All kinds of individuals there. Rejection after rejection after rejection. Out of season. Paul was telling Timothy, whether it's a good season and people are receptive or it's horrible and everyone's rejecting, keep holding to and sharing the gospel regardless of what season it is. You understand those seasons. There are seasons with your families, with your friends, with your neighbors, at work, at school, where it seems that you are a point person, a light of Christ for the gospel, where people are not only hearing you, but they're coming up and they're asking questions, asking things. And then there are seasons when you're the last person they want to see because of their lives. Regardless he said, preach the word, share the gospel. And then he goes into reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Other words that really draw, I think, more so the meaning of those out, reprove, uh, the word conviction. If we just say, for instance, boy, I sure do love Freddy's. That bacon cheeseburger with jalapenos, ooh, it's good. But if I say, man, I love Freddy's. Freddy's is the place to eat. You got to go. In fact, I'm paying for you. It's delicious. There's a difference. There's a conviction of me saying I love Freddy's and I'm taking you with me. Instead of, oh yeah, I love Freddy's. Cheeseburger. Same relationally with Jesus. Oftentimes, we don't even want to be associated with Christ with those who know us. We don't even share. In fact, if they were standing here, they wouldn't even know that you were a follower of his They may know there's some type of a loose church involvement. But as far as a passion or a conviction that comes from the depth of your life, God loves you. You're a sinner. You're lost. There's a need to repent. And if you do that, there's this relationship that's birthed in you with the God of the universe, the creator. See, that's that's conviction. That's the depth of our lives. And I'm not saying that if we don't communicate it, we don't experience it personally with him, but there are times that we go through seasons where we don't have that deep passion where we express in the same way. So with conviction, he says, carry the gospel with conviction, reproving, warning, rebuking. If we really, and this is hard for me, if we really cared about people the way we say we do, if we really cared enough that they were going to spend an eternity separated from God in hell, never to have a second chance, never to have relief, would we share more? Two things remain from this planet. We said it last week, God's word and people. But our lives are stacked and built and our towers are constructed based on everything else. And oftentimes those two, the most important, the only lasting, get left out, neglected, tossed aside. And so if we had this real desire that we really realized, if we knew tomorrow was the last day, God's coming back tomorrow at 3.30 p.m., if we knew that, would we take the risk and the chance to share with people? Well, sure we would. All of us would share Okay, so B2, 
because we're not guaranteed tomorrow, why are we not actively sharing the gospel now? Our words and our lives, do they match up? That's a hard one to eat. Thanks, Paul. Uh, The next one, he says, is to appeal, to exhort, to lay your case out in front of. Conviction is the remedy, regardless of opposition. Encouragement needs to be given. And then we go on in this passage, and he he talks about the time is coming when people not endure sound teaching. Obviously, we are in that environment, but have itching ears that will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off in a mist. So when I see itching ears, I think of allergies. I don't know if you take allergy medicine or not. I do. I take Zyrtec. If I didn't take Zyrtec, we'd hurt certain seasons when flowers would be blooming and things would be happening, and my ears would be driving me crazy. And the only way to get at it would be either to take allergy medicine or to get a stick and cram it in my ear and scratch it. And it'd be dangerous. It'd destroy my eardrum. So we think of this picture of itching ears, and the solution for that is what? Allergy medicine and taking care of ourselves in that way. So these individuals with whom we share the gospel— to suit their itching ears, what is an irritant to them? The gospel, maybe even us. And so what do they do to soothe that? What is their allergy medicine? To get around these false teachers or these friends of theirs who have no interest in the gospel or the Lord at all, and they share with them, man, I met this moron, this fool, however they call us, phrase us, to talk to us about Jesus in the Bible. And it's just driving me crazy. I'm like, that person is so wrong. So what do they do? Go find another Christian to talk about it more? Or typically do they get people that are on the same page as them? And they're like, hey, you're right. Those people are idiots. You're wasting your time. Kill that voice in your ear. It's wrong. And so they suit themselves with these individuals who, who do that and deafen the voice of God in their lives and arts, so that their ears don't itch anymore. You've seen it. You've shared the gospel with people that have done the same thing, that have stepped away from you, and that have gone back into an environment with people that basically are on the same page as them, and so all of a sudden they feel fine about their sin again. Why do you think the lost so criticize and come after you, followers of Jesus? Because to make themselves feel better, what do they want? They want you to jump into the same areas of sin as them and to prove to them that they are right. Students, middle school, high school, brutal. And you've seen the reports in the last year about vaping and about all of the the different things that are happening within the school system and our kids following Jesus, trying to hold out the gospel. The same point, they've got a 1 to 20, 1 to 30, 1 to 50, 1 to 80, whatever the ratio is, and the influence and the pounding, constantly pounding. Why would you hold to this Jesus? And so then, as they continue to try to corrupt students who know the Lord, they get them to jump in with them, and then once they do, it's like, see? I'm so glad I'm not a middle school or high school student in this environment. Proud of our students who are, who are walking and holding out the gospel in an environment that is very difficult. You see it at work as well. 
this is not an easy place to live out for Jesus in any way, shape, or form for any of us. These itching ears. Matthew 7, 13 to 14, a great reminder for us as we continue to challenge not only ourselves as God challenges us, but we challenge our kids. Remember, Matthew 7, 13 to 14, enter by the narrow gate. Our way is narrow. Jesus is narrow. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. For the, war, the road is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So for you, as you continue to sow the gospel, thinking of the picture of the farmer, as you continue to share your story and share the gospel, don't allow discouragement to set in. Some of you have been sharing the gospel with family members and friends for years and have seen nothing. Does that mean that God's not working? Does that mean it's time just to hang it up? No, we have to remember our responsibility is to be obedient, to share the gospel and our story. The Holy Spirit is the one who changes lives. He is the one who does the work. Our responsibility is to tell, to share, not to give up. So we see that there's a public charge. We also see there's a private charge. Now look at verse 5. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So there was this, um, uh, one of the most renowned followers of Jesus, actually called the Prince of Pastors, Charles Spurgeon. You're probably somewhat familiar with him. I've been reading this book called Bright Days, Dark Nights, which talked about his life and the depression and discouragement that he personally walked through as he plowed through life, the challenges he faced. and This one of the most renowned of all time struggled hard. And Warren, Warren Wearsby told a, a story of he talking to a young preacher who once complained to Charles Spurgeon, the famous British preacher of the 1800s, that he did not have as big a church as he deserved. So Spurgeon asked him, how many do you preach to? He responded, oh, about a hundred, the man replied. Solemnly, Spurgeon said, that will be enough to give account for on the day of judgment. Perspective. You've been sowing seeds in the life of that individual by living out the gospel and sharing it consistently with one person, two people, four people, whatever it is. That's enough to give account for on the day of judgment if that is the people group that God has called you to right now. As long as you're open to seeing others and sharing, don't live in discouragement. Wearsby then went on with a great statement. We do not measure the fulfillment of a ministry only on the basis of statistics or on one people see. And we do like statistics, don't we? We realize that faithfulness is important and God sees the heart. First eval, God sees us through and through. Every part of us. Paul challenged him, be sober-minded, keep your head in all situations, reminding him to be focused like a soldier, disciplined like an athlete, steady like a farmer, all strong in grace, if you remember from 2 Timothy chapter 2. Regardless of the field, we're to keep our heads, to keep our focus. Next, he said, endure suffering, hardship, Stay on track because it's evident that it's coming and it will be consistent and continual. This passage that Matt Chandler read to us, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21 this week, begins with, for Christ's love compels us 
because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. His very love, the presence of Christ, compels us to share. And then he tells him, do the work of an evangelist. Whether evangelism is your spiritual gift or not, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have the responsibility to evangelize, to share the gospel and share your story. And so do I. And then he challenges him to fulfill his ministry, to discharge all the duties of your ministry, carry out the work that he has called you to do. Not only was Paul telling Timothy that, he is telling each one of us that. Carry out the ministry, whatever it looks like, where God has called you. It's not a just call, call just for pastors. Our public life must match our private life. Remember, you cannot do life for Jesus unless you do life with Jesus. One story, two verses, and we're done. So for years... This is years ago. I had the pleasure of serving with um, a man who loved Christ, served in the same area, uh, just was, was really a good friend to me, just to be honest. Encouragement. Well, um, he died uh, unexpectedly years ago, and he uh, didn't want a funeral. That's odd. I mean, he used to joke about it and say, well, nobody will come. So why would I have a funeral? Have you thought about your own funeral? I've thought about it. That's weird. I'm not even 50. I'm still thinking about it. Okay, so he made the decision that he wasn't going to have one. And so the funeral home where he was going to be buried and all that, those were the instructions. So we didn't. We didn't celebrate the life of this guy whom I thought I knew very well. Well, it didn't take very long, a couple of days, and um, found out that this good friend of mine for years actually had another life. Went by a different first name. Non-Christian. Not a huge town. Had no idea. And so the reason he didn't want a funeral was, wasn't a fear that people wouldn't come. It was a fear that people would. And that once his name was published in the newspaper that there would be people from this altered world, his second life, with this church life. And that when those two groups came together, there'd be this collision. And both groups would start asking one another questions. Well, that's not. This is. No, that's not. This is. I've said it twice. I'm going to say it again. Good friend for years had no idea. Is your life the same everywhere? Home, school, church, grocery store, work? Or are you concerned that when your death comes, funeral happens, there will be this collision? People who knew you, but, but people who really knew you, if that's a picture of your life, I encourage, exhort, reprove, rebuke. Let God do the work and be the same person that you are at school, that you are at work, that you are at home, that you are at the grocery store, everywhere. And not for the sake of this fear of these groups coming together. 
but to honor God by being transparent and authentic in the life he's called you to, being the same person everywhere. Everywhere. I ask my family, am I the same person that I am at church, that I am at home, that I am in the community? I ask them regularly. You know your kids will tell you the truth. <laughs> Last time I asked was Tieran, Friday. Tieran, same person? You're the same person, Dad. He's called us to be the same person everywhere. If there's a difference there in your life, let God do the work through the lens of restoration and redemption and get those worlds together. And if you are the same person everywhere, keep fighting and striving. God, this is good. Oftentimes I think that we don't realize how God sees us. And Chandler, Matt Chandler, read a verse, Psalm 149.3, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. So here was his point. God doesn't just tolerate you. You realize that, right? God doesn't just tolerate you. Christine Holly, that's a Tuesday. She's all right, I guess. She's going to struggle, but Eric Butler, uh, it's a Thursday. I don't know what his Thursdays look like. Eh, it's all right. Now, what does that tell us? That verse tells us he delights in you. The God of the universe delights in you. He loves you, and he delights in your life. He loves having a relationship with you. You are of value and of purpose. He doesn't just tolerate you and say, okay, sit in the back seat and keep your mouth shut. I love you and I delight in you. That should be freeing. Do you know how long it's been since I've heard that? When Matt Chandler said that, I was like, holy moly, you're right. My gosh, I'm a pastor. I should be hearing that all the time or at least saying it. It was fresh for me. Thank you, Jesus, you don't just tolerate me. He delights in you. The message, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. I can't impress this on you too strongly. God is looking over your shoulder. Christ himself is the judge with the final say on everyone, living and dead. He is about to break into the open with his rule, so proclaim the message with intensity. Keep on watch. Challenge, warn, and urge your people. Don't ever quit. Just keep it simple. You're going to find that there are all times when people will have no stomach for solid teaching, but will fill up on spiritual junk food, catchy opinions that tickle their fancy. They'll turn their backs on the truth and chase mirages. But you, keep your eye on what you're doing. Accept the hard times along with the good. Whew, that's hard. Keep the message alive. Do a thorough job as God's servant. He delights in you. Let's pray.